Our reading this evening is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28. And that's page 1188 of the Church Bibles. One Thessalonians five verse twelve. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire, do not treat prophecies with contempt, test everything, hold on to the good, Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for those wonderful, wonderful words. That if we know you this evening, we stand forgiven at the cross. Father, thank you for your gracious love towards us. And thank you for your graciousness in saving us and speaking to us. Thank you that you lower yourself to talk to us, your humble children. And so we pray now, Lord, as we gather around your word to hear you speak. You might encourage our hearts and cause us to love and delight in you more and more. We pray this in the precious name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Do have a seat. So this evening, we're, uh, it's our last in the series from 1 Thessalonians, and we're thinking about Christian community and how to be a gospel church. I don't know about you, when the Olympics comes around, what events you look forward to? What's the highlight? For me, this has got to be up there. The rowing, the men's and women's fours and eights, uh, for me, that the pinnacle of the Olympics. And what I love about it is it's an event where every single person needs to be literally pulling their weight, pardon the pun, rowing in the same direction. In order to get to the finish line in a decent position, you've got to work together. One oar slightly out of place slows the whole thing down. But of course, the race itself is only the, the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? I uh, once watched a documentary and it was um, back in the, the era of Redgrave and Pinsons. If you're young, you're thinking, who? <laughs> They're legends, British legends. And um, it documented their training camp, basically, their year up to the Olympics. And uh, it, 
man, those guys put them through some pain and toil. And you saw them literally falling off rowing machines. You saw the, the pain, the, the toil, the hard work, the early mornings, the, the tears. But the one thing that stood out to me was the sense of community. The sense of encouragement. There's six of them all going for four places in the boat and yet they, they work together. You would see one of them literally picking another one up off the floor after he'd given everything. It was one in, all in, for the whole year, two years, building up to the Olympics. They did everything they could together to make sure they were ready, ready to get to the finish line in first place. It's a weak illustration, isn't it? But it's an illustration of, of Paul's desire for the church in Thessalonica. He, he longs for them to get to the finish line. He longs for them to make it. And so he says to them, verse 11 of chapter 5, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. You've got to work together on this, he says. You can't do this by yourselves. Jesus has uh, declared these Thessalonian Christians and us as well that they are holy and blameless. That's their status. And so Paul's desire and prayer in this, this letter is that their lives would now increasingly match up with the status that God has given them. Uh, and that process is what we call sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like Christ. And sanctification is not something we do by ourselves. In some ways, it's more comfortable to do it by yourself, isn't it? To see sanctification, becoming more holy, Christ-like, as something personal that I do between me and God. A bit less embarrassing that way. Bit less embarrassing. No one else has to see my sin and my failures. It's just something I work out, me and God's plodding on. But that's not what Jesus asks us to do. Jesus tells his church to grow in holiness together. It's a corporate thing, it's a team effort. And so, in our passage tonight, Paul's going to give us four ways four ways that we can work together to reach the finish line living out our status as blameless and holy people. And the first way we can do that, and in some ways it's quite handy Clive's not here this evening, because it's this, respect your church elders. That's the first encouragement. Look at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Our culture today isn't particularly one for encouraging people to submit to authority, is it? We, we live in the world of rights and independence, freedom to do what you want to do. And so having to recognise someone else's authority over us is, well, it doesn't particularly come naturally to us, particularly when we're not forced to recognise an authority. But the Christian is to respect those who are over you in the Lord. And by that, Paul means the elders, the pastors of, his, of God's church. Uh, the Church of England describes the role of a vicar or minister as a servant and a shepherd of God's people, a servant and a shepherd. And I think it reflects the Bible's language. Uh, God's 
leaders, ministers, vicars, are to serve God's people. That's their primary purpose. But they do so with authority. God's given authority. We know in the New Testament that Jesus is described as the great shepherd of the sheep. But God appoints under-shepherds. Shepherds to take care of God's people. Pastor, as in pasture, to look after the sheep. These men are over us in the Lord, but they don't exercise their own authority. They exercise Christ's authority for the good of those they serve. Therefore, Paul says, hold them in the highest regards. I, I wonder if, particularly my generation and younger, but I guess all of us, I, I wonder if some of us today have lost some of that respect towards our church leaders. We live in a time when we can listen to all sorts of brilliant speakers from all over the world. We can download sermons, we can read books on almost every aspect of Christianity. And the danger is that we end up paying more attention to what we hear or read over there than we do so week by week from our church leaders from up here. And it's only a small step from there to develop a critical spirit or a negative attitude to the person that God has placed to care for you. Now, of course it's okay to disagree with your church leader. Paul isn't saying you have to agree on absolutely everything. But what he's saying is that as Christians, our default attitude should be to submit ourselves to those who have been placed by God over us to teach and encourage us and to hold them in the highest regards. Because as Paul notes, these elders work hard among you. I've sometimes met, um, not here, but other places, church family who are a bit frustrated with the vicar or the minister, and they're frustrated because he wasn't there when they needed him. He didn't call, he, he didn't pop round, he didn't visit. But Paul would encourage us, I think, to give our ministers the benefit of the doubt. I don't know about you, but in all my travels and life as a Christian, I've never met a minister who loves Jesus and wants to serve the gospel, who isn't incredibly busy, trying to balance 101 different tasks and demands. Often their family life suffers as a result. They work hard among us. And so if the church leader didn't pop round or didn't call, let, let's not hold it against them. Because most church leaders feel bad already for not being able to do enough to support and care for the people that God has given them to serve. Let's respect our elders. Let's hold them in the highest regard. Of course, there's one time, isn't there, one particular time when we'll find it hardest to do that. And that is when, verse 12, they admonish us. Uh, to admonish someone, that's defined in the dictionary as to reprimand firmly. Anyone enjoy being reprimanded firmly? It's an experience you look forward to as a, a child, the reprimand of a parent at school, at work, you're called into the boss's office. How do you feel when you get that firm reprimand? It's not nice, is it? 
None of us like to be critiqued. We, we can feel small, we can feel embarrassed, and so sometimes our, our reaction is to push back. It's to think, no, I'm not listening to that nonsense. That's not me. Who are, who are you to tell me how to behave? Who are you to even suggest I might be slightly wrong on something? But we know deep down, don't we, that the best reprimands are always for our goods. And they come from love. And they're for our benefit or the benefit of others. And Paul was saying here, look, our church leaders have been given authority by God to admonish his people. It's not something they enjoy doing. I'm sure it's not something you would enjoy doing. It's not something that, it's an unenviable task in many ways, isn't it? But they do it for the good of you and me and for the good of God's people. So if you ever sit here on a Sunday night and you feel like what's been said is preaching directly at you and you feel the critique, or if ever you have to sit down with someone and um, a church leader gives you a gentle, encouraging, but a, a critique and says, come on, then let's respect them. Let's continue to hold them in the highest regards because they speak for your good and for the good of God's people. You see, instead, verse 13, let's live in peace with each other. Let's strive to live in peace with each other as a church family. So firstly, respect your church elders. Secondly then, the way we can encourage each other and help each other to reach the finish line is to warn, encourage, and help your brothers and sisters. As we said at the beginning, sanctification is a group project. And although church leaders who preach God's word play a vital part in that, it's not solely down to them. The responsibility is ours, together as God's people. We all have to play a part in growing each other in Christ-likeness. And verse 14 and 15 explain how. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. We're to warn those who are idle. It's really frustrating, isn't it, when people don't pull their weight. Maybe you've experienced that at school or college in a group project or at work or or just in a task or maybe around the home. Just people not pulling their weight, doing what needs to be done. It's really, really frustrating. And this type of idleness was obviously a problem in um, the church here because Paul mentions it here and again in 2 Thessalonians at much greater length. It seems that some were really happy to feed off the hard work of others, literally perhaps, looking to others to provide their food. But a family, a family is one that works for each other. So we are to warn the idol. We are to be a church family that works hard for each other. I don't know if um, you were around this morning or you've uh, been around during the week for Holiday Club. Boy, do some people in this church work hard. I've just been a, a little back seat observer. I've done nothing for this week. And I've been incredibly humbled to see the amount of effort and work and toil 
that people have put into Holiday Club. Some who will never be seen, they're behind the scenes. Some people uh, going here all day and then working on call during the night. Amazing work. And many of us here will serve in all sorts of different ways, but it might just be that actually sometimes we'll need to warn each other. Warn people who perhaps refuse to contribute in a meaningful way to the church family here. Because that's not what church family do. We work hard. We warn the idle. We are to encourage the timid. Some people might be on the edge of church things, not because they're, they're idle, but because, well, perhaps they feel timid. They're more of a faint-hearted type of person. They feel anxious. Perhaps there's, and there will be actually, people in the church family who wonder whether they really belong at all. Maybe that's you. As a church family, those aren't the type of people we warn. Those are the people we need to encourage, to reassure, to invite, to draw in, to remind that they belong. And perhaps we do that by reminding them of some of the truths we looked at last week. We're to encourage the timid. We're to help the weak. As I've studied this this week, I'm not entirely sure what Paul means by the weak. He could be talking about the physically weak, those struggling with ill health or illness. Or he could be talking about the spiritually weak, those struggling to put to death sin in their bodies. Either way, I, I don't think it matters. The church family is to help. The image here of help is the image of someone coming up and putting an arm around you, walking alongside you. You know, when you're struggling, and some of you guys know this only too well, it's a wonderful thing for someone to put your arm around you and to walk alongside. Perhaps by providing a meal. Perhaps by opening the Bible or or sharing a verse, praying with someone. Perhaps it's been a shoulder to cry on. Perhaps it means sharing someone's pain. It it means crying with them. Because that's what families do. That's what family life is like. Being family means sometimes saying the hard things. It means giving the warnings, but sometimes it means helping. In fact, it always means helping. And, you know, as we do all those things, we will need to be patient with everyone. Some of us don't like change, do we? Just like things how they are. And many of us are slow to embrace change, no more so when it comes to growing in our Christ-likeness. We're incredibly slow. And so Paul says to the church and to us, we need to be patient with everyone. If you want to help other people grow, then you need to be in for the long haul. It's no good just meeting with someone and saying, look, well, I've told you what you need to do. We've talked about this. Why is it still a problem? It's no good, is it? We need to be patient. We need to lower our expectations for people. And we need to keep on warning and encouraging and helping and praying. Because it takes time. And we're to make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but instead 
be kind to each other and everyone else. You see, revenge isn't something families do, is it? Revenge splits families apart. Forgiveness is the glue that keeps families together. Just note, though, what's interesting about this, okay? This, this, this whole verse here, it's interesting that everyone is responsible to make sure that people don't repay evil with evil. Just because you might not be the one who's been sinned against doesn't mean that you have a responsibility, you don't have a responsibility to help others. So when someone comes to you and they says, I've been wronged in this way and they're angry and they're fed up, what do you do? How do you encourage them? Do you say, do you know what, that's outrageous. You need to go and sort that out. You need to, we would we'd never say revenge, would we? But we'd, you know, subtly try and get even. Paul says, that's not what family do. Let's encourage each other to forgive, to not repay evil with evil. The third way then we can uh, grow and together is by being joyful, thankful and prayerful. Verses 16 to 18. I wonder if um, someone came in through the doors on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening to St Mary's, never been before, and on the way out, I called them and I said, look, just in three words, how would you describe St. Mary's? Well-dressed, sophisticated, learned? I think that's what they'd say. Or how about this unruly, miserable, and boring? It's a bit harsh, that one, isn't it? What about this? Joyful, prayerful, and Thankful. That would be great, wouldn't it? If that's what people saw and felt when they saw St Mary's Church family on a Sunday and during the week. Joyful. And by that, not a fake grin. Not a fake grin that says all's fine when you're feeling sad or grotty or low. But a deep down joy that springs from faith and hope. Prayerful. A church family that, that prays continually, verse 17. By that, Paul doesn't mean every second. You know, we're called to do lots of things. We can't be praying every second. What he means is a prayerful, as an attitude, an attitude of prayerful dependence on the God who is sovereign. I've been really challenged um, by that verse, particularly this week, and um, thinking of just the challenge of my own lack of prayerfulness. And I've just decided for, for that and a whole host of other reasons to delete a whole load of apps off my phone. We often say we're too busy, don't we? Too busy to pray, and yet we've always got time to check Facebook or social media or BBC Sport or whatever. Do you know what I thought? I'd be a prayer warrior if I spent the amount of time praying that I do faffing around on my phone. Pray continually, Paul says, because that's what family do. We're prayerful. I wonder, you know, if we've been chatting with someone during a service or someone's been sharing some of their struggles, why don't we just stop at the end of the conversation and say, do you know what, can I just pray for you? That's what families do. Or why not commit to praying through the church directory? Just praying for the members of this family. Joyful, prayerful and thankful. 
A church family that finds reasons to be thankful even when there seems to be very little to be thankful for. I've been at St Mary's a year now and wonderfully I think those are three words that describe this church family. But wouldn't it be great if together we grew in those things? We strive to be a family that its heart was joyfulness, prayerfulness and thankfulness. Fourthly, a way we can encourage each other is to do not treat prophecies with contempt. Verses 19 to 22. Ah, these verses. These verses are thing, full of things that make you go, hmm, what does that mean? And uh, no doubt by the end of this very short little section of the talk, sermon, you'll have more questions at the end than you did at the beginning. Uh, if you do, see Rob. Um, <laughs> now the problem here is, let's dive in. The problem here was that the church were holding words of prophecy in contempt. So we're not sure why, but for some reason, people were dismissing words of prophecy and ignoring them. Okay, well, what were these prophecies? Well, we, prophecies, we get some clues in the passage, don't we? We see in these verses that prophecies were words from God given to people to say. And we know that because they are the result of the Spirit's work in the church. By ignoring these words of prophecy, the church, Paul says, is putting out the Spirit's fire. So these words are God-given words through people. However, what we also see in these verses is that these words from God, these prophetic words, did not have anywhere near the same authority as God's word in Scripture. And we know that because the Thessalonians were to test these prophetic words. They were to test them. They were to weigh them, to measure them. They were to measure the character, test the character of the one speaking them. But primarily the test was to weigh them against Scripture. Because Scripture is the ultimate authority. And no other word of prophecy comes anywhere near Scripture. So having tested these words of, of pro prophecy, the church were to hold on to the goods and reject every kind of evil. I'd love to move on there, but of course there's another glaring question for us all, isn't it? It's this, well, how do we apply these verses today? And that's, I guess, where it gets a little bit more complex and there's more disagreement. Now, some would argue that this gift of prophecy no longer happens in the church today. They would argue that it was a particular gift that God gave to his church for a particular time, a particular point in church history. But that gift has now ceased because that time is over. The apostolic era, if you like. Others would argue that, no, this prophecy does continue today. And this is where people define it in all sorts of ways. Here's, I guess, um, some definitions in a more sort of conservative, um, the world. So it would be defined as a particular insight into Scripture and its meaning, or an insight into the application of Scripture in the contemporary world to the church or to individuals. There you go, there's a whistle-stop tour on prophecy. Everyone happy with that? All clear? Good, let's move on. 
So, what do we do with these verses? Well, I guess it depends on your view of what prophecy is and whether it continues today. Let's chat about that afterwards. You'd need to do a more of a sort of systematic sweep of the whole New Testament to draw conclusions on that. What's important here, whichever way you land, is that the challenge, Paul gives the challenge to God's people, that they should be ready to listen to God's words. Whenever God speaks, they should be ready to listen. And that scripture should shape everything. There we go. Let's leave it there. Four ways then that we can work together to reach the finish line. We can respect our elders. We can warn, encourage, and help our brothers and sisters. We can be joyful, thankful, and prayerful. And we cannot treat prophecies with contempt. And we get to the end. That's the end of Paul's letter to one Thessalonians. Oh, it's nearly, isn't it? Not quite. Let's just finish with this. Look at how he finishes. He finishes with his prayer and his desire for God's for the church, which he's been banging all along. He says, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his prayer. And everything he's just said is for that aim. But take careful notes of verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. See, the Thessalonians, Paul says, you need to labour and strive and toil. You're to work hard, to grow in your holiness, to love each other, to serve each other, to encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. Keep going at that. You're doing well, but keep going. But don't despair. Don't despair when you see time and time again your failings and your inability to encourage one another and your inability to grow in Christ-likeness because God will complete what he started in you. He will do it. So if you felt encouraged by 1 Thessalonians as we've gone through it, I hope you have. Live it out. Strive to live it out. And when you realise you can't, when tomorrow morning or tomorrow evening you think, I'm not even praying today, so much for being prayerful, just remember God will complete what he started in you. He will not let you go. So, verse 25, brothers, pray for us. We can't finish without mentioning verse 26, can we? Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. In our culture, it's probably more of a handshake, isn't it? Hug if you're lucky. But however you do it, whether it's a kiss or a hug, the way you greet someone in the church family is important. Because how you begin is a sign, it's a clue of how that relationship will go on, of what we're trying to do for each other. You don't kiss someone you hate. You kiss someone you love. So Paul says to the church family, live this out together. Encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us. Let's pray. Just a moment to pause to reflect on the challenge of this passage. 
Loving Father, we, we come before you tonight and we recognize our failings. We recognize how individual we can be in our walk with you. And we thank you for the challenge this evening to uh, love and serve each other, to grow in this process of sanctification together. And so we pray again this evening as we prayed before. May you, Father, the God of peace, sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we delight and praise you and thank you, loving Father, that you, the one who calls us, is faithful. And you will do it. Amen.